0: Well, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to First Samuel chapter 2. Our scripture reading this morning is First Samuel chapter two verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, "My heart exalts in the Lord." My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The, ba- the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Lord, this is your word, and we are a people formed by your word. I pray that you would humble our hearts this morning. Take me from this pulpit. Speak clearly through your spirit. Oh Lord, may we be convinced now more than ever that you are a God of purpose. You are a God of holy character who, towards us, are gracious, kind, and good. In Jesus' name, amen. What can we expect of God for Christians? Some say Christians can expect God to give them everything they want. Suffice they have enough faith. This is prevalent in our culture. And some might be frustrated with the me-focused Christianity that pervades a lot of uh, very uh, notable ministries and notable churches. And we might be so frustrated that we swing the opposite direction, saying that God has no interest in our personal problems, only His big plan. What can Christians expect from God? The story of Hannah teaches us what we can expect from God. Namely, we can expect God to act according to His purposes and His character. And this is an immense comfort for Christians because in Christ, His purposes include us. And because of his character, those in Christ can trust that his purposes towards us are gracious, his purposes towards us are kind, his purposes towards us are good. If you haven't already turned to First Samuel chapter 1, just back one page, this is the story of Hannah. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Hannah is an Israelite, a God follower. We don't really read about her anywhere else in the Bible. She isn't one of these titanic figures in salvation history. She doesn't do any mighty deeds. She doesn't earn for herself any great renown. Instead, what she is is an example for us of what it means to trust God's purpose and to trust God's character. Hannah stands out for us this morning because of the context in which she trusted God. In Hannah's day, the state of her people Israel could be summed up in a single word, hopeless. Though things hadn't always been that way. We're in 1 Samuel and you'll notice uh, this part of your Bible is a lot smaller than this part of your Bible. That's because we're very early on in redemptive history. We've gotten some history God promised Hannah's forefather, the forefather of the Israelites, a man named Abraham. He promised Abraham three things, if you remember your Bible history. God promised Abraham that he would make Israel a great nation. God promised Abraham that he would give this nation a land to dwell in forever. And God promised Abraham that he would keep his presence with his people forever, under one condition, that they kept his commandments Well, over the generations, as Israel grew in power and prominence, they would grow comfortable with God and they were in the habit of forgetting about God. And from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges, a pattern begins to emerge in the generations of Israel. The first generation, the one that experienced God's blessings, would remember God. They would pass on what they learned to the second generation. And the second generation, though they hadn't experienced the blessings of God, would take God's blessings for granted and they wouldn't pass on what they had learned to the next generation. And usually by the third generation, Israel had all but forgotten God and even his name, Yahweh. They wouldn't take the law seriously. They wouldn't take God's, God himself seriously. And as a result, God would punish them. He would let their enemies rise up and take land away from them. He would let neighboring nations come in, overpower them, and make them a vassal state. And the people... And that generation would cry out to God for deliverance. And God in his mercy, though he didn't have to, would send a judge, a servant leader, to rally the people, overthrow their oppressors, and lead the people back to obedience. Well, that generation would obey God, and they would usually pass on what they learned to the second generation, and by the third or fourth generation, people had forgotten about God again. God would deliver them over into the hand of their enemy, and the cycle would start all over again. 1 Samuel chapter 1 takes place after many generations of this cycle. God's people have forgotten about God again. They are fighting a losing battle against their greatest enemy, the Philistines. Kids, you'll remember the story of Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. He was probably just a kid when this was happening, a, probably a very large kid. Their priests, they're not walking in obedience. There is no judge to rally the people against their enemies. And the last words we read in the histories, uh, before chapter 1, verse 1, the last word we read in the book of Judges is this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when we get to the opening words of 1 Samuel, we're settling in for a bleak picture, and a bleak picture is exactly what we get. We find ourselves confronted with a barren woman in the midst of a barren nation. Look at verse 1 with me. There was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. Now he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, even though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, we read this opening, and we are immediately confronted with problems. First, we learn that Hannah, the hero of our story, is barren. She cannot have children. And it's like there is a, a theological flavor to this news. Verse 5 and verse 6 both say she can't have children because God had closed Hannah's barrenness is representative of the barrenness of the whole nation of Israel. We read in verse 3 of the priests Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of the high priest Eli. Now, there's some foreshadowing here. Hophni and Phinehas are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, but they're corrupt. Their behavior is actually pretty shocking If you read ahead in chapter 2, we read that they abuse their positions of authority. They're prostituting women who are coming to worship. They're stopping people who are bringing their sacrifices to the Lord. They're carving out the best portions for themselves and saying, now go ahead and take the rest to God. They're abusing their position of, of authority. They have no respect and honor for the Lord, and they're making a mockery of God's house. And their father, Eli, who's a genuine dude, he's the high priest. He is in a totally incompetent worship leader. We read later in chapter 2 that Eli's eyesight is dim. It's, it's almost gone. He's a very old man. And Eli is a parable for Israel's leaders their eyes are spiritually dim. They don't have the sight to see where God is leading them. In fact, in chapter 2, Eli can't even confront his own sons for their shocking and lewd behavior. This is an incompetent worship leader. And confronted with Hannah's barrenness, in fact, God's blessings to Abraham feel empty. Exodus 23, 26 promises none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of their days. And in spite of this promise, barrenness is Hannah's heritage. Hannah's foremother, the wife of Abraham, Sarah, was barren and she was an old woman, had no children before God supernaturally intervened and she had her son Isaac. And Isaac married a woman named Rebekah. Rebekah was also barren until the Lord supernaturally intervened, and she had a son. And that son Jacob also married a woman, Rachel, who was barren until God supernaturally intervened, and she had a son of her own. God intervened for each of those godly women. And as we come to this text this morning, we have to wonder, will God do the same thing for Hannah? Will he show himself to be trustworthy of his promises to the Israelites? First Samuel is full of stories of great kings who do great things, powerful priests, uh, powerful prophets. We learn of great events, battles on an epic scale, huge buildings that go up. But Elkanah, Hannah's husband, is a no one from a nowhere town and a nowhere city, this chapter is about a no one family. What Hannah needs is not fame and notoriety. What she needs is life. And so does Israel. What will God do? Is Israel and is Hannah included in God's good purpose? We've got to keep reading. But before we move on, there's another problem that we're faced with. The second problem is Hannah's painful home life. Often a man in this time would marry a woman, and if she was barren, if she couldn't have children, he would marry again. And often the first wife would be the favorite, and the second one would bear children. Now, Hannah is the favorite wife, we learn. She's given a second double portion, so she's probably the first wife, with Penina being the second, the one who bore children. And if this makes you uncomfortable, you're in good company. It makes me uncomfortable. Polygamy is, and I think we should address this real quick, polygamy is not something that's outright condemned in the Old Testament. It is in the New. But in the Old Testament, what we find is we never find a single example of a happy, healthy, rich polygamous relationship. Just think through in your mind all the polygamous relationships in the Old Testament. Abraham had two wives, and it was a bitter, awful thing. Jacob had two wives. It was a bitter, awful thing. David had a lot of wives, and it was horrible. Solomon had a lot of wives, and they turned him and the entire nation against God. Uh, Polygamy is never condoned in Scripture. In fact, in Genesis 2, we find that God's design for marriage is one man, one woman for life. Faithful, monogamous marriage. In fact, the song of songs, the richest piece of poetry we have in Scripture inspired by God is not about the love relationship between a a king and his harem. It's between a husband and his wife. So when we come to the story about Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah, we come against a very painful family dynamic. This is a problem. And Elkanah shows favor to Hannah. This was apparently a public sort of favor. The text says that every year Elkanah would take his family up to Shiloh. This is where the tabernacle was. He would take them there for a worship feast and every year, uh, Elkanah would give portions to worship to his wife, Peninnah, and to her kids, her sons and daughters. But it says that he gave a double portion to Hannah because he loved her, even though the Lord had closed up her womb. And the text says that, um, well, Peninnah didn't like that very much. She sees this favor, and she starts seething with jealousy. Hannah is barren, And so Penina uh, takes that and and she takes that fact and she jabs it back into Hannah's heart. She taunts and ridicules Hannah for it. We can imagine what this kind of calculated cruelty would look like. Hannah, we're getting ready to to make the trek up to Shiloh. And I just got to say, getting seven kids ready for a road trip is sure a problem. Am I right? (laughs) Oh, that's right. Hey, Hannah, we're sitting here in Shiloh at this feast. I would love for you to come sit next to me. Oh, but this is where my sons have to sit and um, this is where my daughters have to sit. I guess you'll have to find your own place. Hannah, my goodness, I'm having some child training problems. Can I come to you and tell you about them? Oh, you probably wouldn't be able to give me any advice, would you? We can imagine what this kind of calculated cruelty would look like in this time. And Elkanah sees the pain of his wife, and his heart's in the right place. He tries to comfort her, but he doesn't give her any comfort. He just says, kind of get over it. I'm I'm better than ten sons. That's probably not the best way to help your grieving wife in this kind of scenario. His heart's in the right place, but it's clumsy and, and careless. We have polygamy. We have a bitter rivalry. We have an unhelpful comforter, and these things come into Shiloh to meet with an incompetent worship leader and corrupt leadership. This is a microcosm of Israel, and into this barren landscape, God finally enters. Look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat besides the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor will touch his head. Well, it seems that Hannah summons up her courage to sit down for this feast, but her heart is heavy, probably not wanting to cause a scene. She waits until everyone has eaten and drunk, and then she excuses herself. She rises, and she goes before the Lord. She goes to the tabernacle and falls down on, the, uh, on, her, on her face, on the, um, on the tile of the tabernacle, and she cries out to God. Her husband is no help. Her home life is bitter, and she rises to worship to go to the one who can help her. And she makes a vow to the Lord, and she says this. She says, O Lord of hosts, she recognizes that God is the powerful one here. He is the one with the moving power. He is the Lord of hosts, of angelic armies. He commands power in the world. She asks God to look on the affliction of your servant. Now, this is a common refrain in Israel's history. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, I'll remember back in Exodus, um, God told Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people Israel, and then he sends deliverance. This is a phrase that comes up again and again. Israel at that time was under slavery to Egypt in Israel in this time is under slavery to their sin. And Hannah again cries out, she says, uh, look upon your servant. She says, your servant, your servant, your servant. Three times she describes herself as God's servant. She's making a contrast between the Lord of hosts, the powerful one, and herself, a servant of God. No one with any asking power, no one with any moving power, not a king, not a queen, not a person of influence, just a servant of God coming humbly to the Lord of hosts with a desperate prayer on her lips. We get the idea from this prayer that this is something that she prayed year after year. We get a Philippians 4, 6 reality happening here. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God again and again and again. It is good for Hannah to go before the Lord with this request because God, we're told in verses 5 and 6, is the one who had closed her womb. God is glorified when we put His purposes and His plan above our own desires. Jesus prayed in the garden, Not my will, O Lord, but Yours be done. Now, Hannah doesn't say these exact words, but her vow shows just how God-centric her prayer is. She says, if you give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. She says, no razor will touch his hair. That's not like a hairstyle move or anything like that. This is language of a Nazarite vow. And Nazarite is someone who their hair would not be touched. No razor would touch their hair or their beard. They would not uh, drink any strong drink, wine, or alcohol. Uh, They wouldn't touch any dead thing In, in a word. They were set apart for service to the Lord, God's man. And Hannah says, if you give me a son, he will be your man. He will belong to you. This is beyond what godly parents do when a a child is born and they dedicate that child to the Lord. Many of you have been part of child dedication services. This is not what we're talking about here. Hannah is saying literally, God, if you give me a kid, I'm going to give him to you physically, fully, for the rest of his life. And Hannah continues praying, and we come across this in verse 12. Eli comes to the scene. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Hannah's emotions in this passage are so rich. We can see Hannah in our mind's eyes laid on the floor before the Lord's house, her lips moving, but no sounds coming out because of the anguish in her her heart. Some of you have experienced this before in times of great peril and of great need, crying out to God, making a sound in your heart, but nothing coming through. And yet God hears this. And Eli misinterprets this. This is interesting. Eli sees her and assumes that she's drunk, And he confronts her. Though Eli is old and we later learn that his eyes are dim, he can't see very well, there's probably something more going on here. Eli is a worship leader in a house with very little worship. It has probably been so long since he's seen genuine worship, he can't recognize it anymore. And so when Hannah comes with genuine worship, he just assumes, man, her passion just must be wine. It's like my son's doing crazy things. This woman must be drunk. And when he comes to her, she defends herself before him. She isn't pouring out too much wine for herself. She says, I am pouring out my soul before the Lord. She speaks out of the depths of her heart's anguish. And Eli, I'm sure, is so encouraged. She's blown away by what he sees, and so he blesses her and he uh, gives her a prayer with God's favor. Now notice, when, when Eli blesses her, this is important, Eli doesn't promise Hannah anything. He acknowledges that God has heard her, and he gives her a blessing. May the Lord grant your requests. He has heard Hannah be at peace. And the text tells us that Hannah is refreshed Her face is no longer sad, and she is able to stomach food again. Now, we know, if if you know the story of Hannah, we we know how this story ends. Hannah does indeed get the, uh, the desire of her heart, but she doesn't know that yet. And if we're reading this story for the first time, we don't know that yet. All we know is that after Hannah came before the Lord, her face was no longer sad. Her heart was no longer troubled. She could stomach food. Hannah gets the desire of her heart, but many times we won't. And many times we don't. Though Hannah hoped God would answer her prayer, her deepest hope is found in something else. Hannah's hope isn't coming from an answered prayer. Her hope comes from knowing that God has heard her. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Before Hannah went to God, her face was sad, bitter tears were on her cheeks, unspeakable sorrow was being spoken on her lips. Her grief was so intense that she couldn't stomach food. Her hope was deferred, her heart was sick, but then she took her cares before the Lord and laid her burden at his feet. And then her heart was no longer sad. Then she was able to stomach food. God's listening ear was a desire fulfilled, which became like a tree of life welling up inside her. You know, we come to God all the time with desires, good desires. We come to God all the time with godly desires. God, bless my family. Keep them safe. God, please give me wisdom in this decision that I have to make. God, please give me a spouse. God, please give me children. God, please save my neighbor. God, please save my kids. Lord, lead me out of this temptation. But even before the Lord grants the desires of Christians, we can hope because we know that God hears us. If you are in Christ, you have the ear of your heavenly Father at all times. We get distracted by noises all the time. Right now, there's there's rain on our roof. We have kids in the back. We're tired, we're hungry, we haven't had enough caffeine. We get distracted all the time. God is never distracted. He never doesn't hear you. He's never too busy to listen. He's never off doing something else. If you are in Christ, you always, at any time of day, at any time of night, no matter the state of your soul in that moment, if you are in Christ, the Father hears you. He hears you and he loves you. And he is on the move. And what he does next may surprise you. And it certainly surprised Hannah Look at verse 19 with me. God answers a desperate prayer. I love this. Look at verse 19. So they rose early in the morning. They worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Not long after their Shiloh trip, God reveals that his answer to Hannah's request is yes. Elkanah and Hannah do what married people do, but the text says that God intervenes. She conceives a child and bears a son. A direct answer to prayer, a reversal of supernatural proportions. Now, Hannah had her prayer answered And I don't think this is a pattern or a promise that we can claim for ourselves. This isn't something we should expect for ourselves. We can't always assume that we're going to get every desire of our hearts. But Hannah is a marvelous example of what to do with your burdens and anxieties. We take them to the Lord. But God is pleased to answer Hannah in this instance. And only give her what she wants, But God is doing something greater. He has a greater purpose for this little baby, this little baby named Samuel. Hannah names him Samuel. Samuel means something like God has heard. And in verse 21, we see a woman who is fruitful, and we see a future leader for Israel. Verse 21 The man Elkanah, and all his house, went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vows. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as this child is weaned, I'm giving him back, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, "'Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord.'" For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So this annual pilgrimage takes place again. Our story ends exactly how our story began, but this time things are different. Hannah stays back, not because she can't stand to be in God's house, but because now she is nurturing the blessing that God has given her. Hannah makes good on her vow. Now imagine the tension here. Imagine making the vow in a desperate moment. When the time comes to fulfill that vow, it's going to be really hard to keep it. She could have forgotten it, A few years, I'm sure, had passed. She could have been like, I don't, what vow? What are you talking about? Only she knew about that vow. She could have downplayed it as the passion of the moment. Oh, I was just so, so needy back then. I made a a foolish vow, but it's much better for a child to be with his mother to be in a loving household. I, I know best. She could have negotiated with God. Well, I'll give him to you, God, but let's just wait until he's a grown adult when I've had plenty of time with him. On the contrary, we get the sense that she's making every effort to get Samuel ready as soon as possible to service f- to the Lord. She stays back from worshiping so that she can nurture this kid, prepare him for the Lord. She says, Let me wait until he's weaned. In this time in Israel, a child was weaned around three or four. So this is a little kid, a little three year old, a little four year old that she's taking with her up to Shiloh, presenting for the Lord she's going to drop him off and never see him again. Her three or four-year-old son. She brings him to the tabernacle, leaves him in Eli's care, and then goes home. But before she does, she prays another prayer on the same steps of this tabernacle. This time, it's not a wordless prayer of anguish, but a soaring song of praise. Look at chapter 2 just briefly with me real quick. Verses 1 through 10, this was our scripture reading this morning. This is Hannah's response to God answering her prayer. This is her song of praise. Time precludes a careful study right now, but if you scan through the song real quick, just do it real quick, I want you to find every time Hannah mentions children, childbearing, or birth, Go ahead, just look real quick. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. How many times do you see her mention? Children, childbirth, or childbearing? I see just once. In a 16-line song, the second half of verse 5, she mentions, she mentions children. Even though the, the moment for Hannah singing the song is God giving her a child, her song of praise is so much broader The theme of her song is God reversing the fortunes of the world. Now, this is a theme of Scripture, especially in 1 Samuel. And this has become Hannah's story. In verses 2 through 4 and in verses 9 through 10, we see judgment being proclaimed against God's enemies. First against God's enemies right around the corners of Israel, and then God's enemies around the globe. These are huge. Huge themes for such a small circumstances. What does this have to do with Hannah's child? I think Hannah in this moment has faith through the Spirit to recognize that God is doing something really, really big in her small prayer being answered. We get just a tiny hint of this. We get a glimpse of it back in verse 1 of chapter 1. Look there again. Let's see if we can find that hint real quick. In chapter 1, verse 1, we see that there was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. He was the son of a son of a son of a son. And the important phrase is right there at the end, an Ephrathite. Now, verse 1, we're told that Hannah is an Ephrathite. Why does that matter? I'll tell you. You guys ready for the big reveal? Because an Ephrathite is from Ephrathah. None of us have ever heard of Ephrathah. I mean, this is a nowhere town. This is a nobody person. Who's ever heard of Ephrathah? But tell me if you've heard the other name by which this same city is called, Bethlehem. Micah, a prophet 300 years after the birth of Samuel, would write this, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great for the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." Jesus is from Samuel's hometown. 700 years after Micah prophesied this, King Jesus is born in that same nowhere, nobody town, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And Hannah in her song in chapter 2 just sees a seedling of something even bigger happening in her little baby Samuel. And Jesus would be the fulfillment of that thing. Here's the point for us this morning. When you don't understand what God is doing, you can trust God's purpose, and you can trust God's character. On this side of the cross, we have immense insight into the Old Testament. We read Hannah's song, and we see Jesus in verse 1, Jesus in verse 2, Jesus in verse 3, But when she sang those words, she couldn't have possibly imagined what was in store for her baby boy. Her baby boy Samuel would one day anoint the great king over Israel, King David, the one whose lineage would come through to Jesus. Yet in this song, though Hannah doesn't know what's going on, we see joy, unshakable joy that God is doing something big, something bigger than Hannah, than Eli, than Samuel, Hannah's joy doesn't come from knowing all the particulars of God's purpose for her son, but in knowing that God has a purpose. The path to irrevocable joy is tying your happiness to the purposes of God. Sometimes my desires just naturally line up with God's purposes, and I get what I want immediately. Um, I, I pray each day that God will take care of my family, keep them healthy, and, and most days God does that. He takes care of them, they're, they're healthy, no problems at all. Pray for three meals a day and I get three meals and more. Uh, I pray for a warm room and a, a roof over my heads and God gives it to me. Many times my immediate desires are part of God's purposes. And while I can't know if I'll get exactly what I want every day, I do know, based on what God has revealed of Himself in Scripture, that His purposes for my life each day in Christ are good, are kind, are gracious. And I also know, if I've been reading my Bible, that I know how this story ends. I know God wins. I know that all evil is taken care of. And I know that all of my ultimate desires are fulfilled. And in the meantime, I can leave the particulars up to God. So even when I don't get what I want, my joy remains. So long as I am lining up my desires with God's purposes, I have joy irrevocable. Now there's a tension here. Sometimes we can't reconcile God's purposes with our immediate circumstances. Sometimes in the midst of suffering of a particular circumstance, we look at what we're going through and we cannot see any way that God has a good, gracious, kind purpose in what's going on. And if you are alive long enough, you will come to that place. You can't understand how God possibly could use your circumstance for good purpose. You don't see how God's character squares with what you are going through. Three years ago, my wife and I um, lost our first child to a miscarriage. And I was prepared for miscarriages. I knew they happened, but I was not prepared for the grief. I've lost family, and years ago I lost a very close friend. I know what grief feels like, but I was not expecting this grief. Like the, the first signs of, of, of what was happening was on a Saturday and my wife called me while I was in Dallas at a, a concert with, with my students, a Christian concert, and she called me, we prayed, and I went back in that room and that band, the song that they sang when I walked back in the room was a song called Sovereign. You are who you are, you never fail to be who you are. Always on time, always in control, every knee should bow, you are Lord of all, sovereign, sovereign Sovereign. And in that moment, I couldn't reconcile those words with what I was going through. We lost the baby on a Sunday, and I was fine during worship rehearsal. This was back when we were meeting on Sunday nights. I was fine during worship rehearsal. And then when it came time to sing that first song, Come Thou Found, I could not find the words to utter Come Thou Found of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. I was just undone. And I wish that I could say that that just happened for a weekend. But it was grief that went on for weeks with all its accompanying doubts and questions, anger and frustration. It was weeks. God surrounded me and my family with love. He gave us meals through the church, surrounded us with comfort. We were given immense fellowship, but I didn't want God to give me fellowship or meals. I wanted God to give me my child back. I wish I could say that I was just filled with peace and trust and had joy irrevocable, But the fact is, I didn't. I resisted God's love, his care, and his affection. And yet, God didn't despise me for it. He never rejected me. He never moved away. And in that season, many blessings came. I was blessed in spite of my own sin. This church loved me in a profound way. I grew very close to my own wife. I've come to cherish life more. I come to cherish heaven more. I think of heaven so much now that I know that someone is there. And while I certainly can see many good things that God has brought about as a result of this, God has never told me exactly why he had accomplished, he had to accomplish those things the way that he did. And at this point, I don't think I'll ever know. And yet joy has returned to my soul because I've realized that God never stopped being who he was. He never stopped loving me. He never stopped caring for me. He never stopped being good. He never stopped listening to me. And even though I don't see it, that doesn't change the fact that he does indeed have a good purpose for all my suffering in Christ. What is so amazing about the story of Hannah is that after thousands of generations have passed, God has not changed at all. God still loves his people today. God still delights in his people today. God's purposes for his people are still always good, not because we deserve them or that we've earned them, but because his son gave himself up for me and made me his own. This joy is offered to all. But it is only enjoyed by those who humbled themselves before the Lord, repented of their sin, and given themselves over to Jesus. After Hannah dropped Samuel off at the tabernacle, Hannah's life went right back to normal. I imagine after bearing a son, Hannah was still the brunt of Penina's taunting. I imagine it even got worse after this. Israel was still a barren land. There was no king. People still did what was right in their own eyes. Eli was still as blind as a bat, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas were still as corrupt and vile as ever. Yet for Hannah, everything had changed. Her joy was bound up in God's ultimate purpose for her life and for her people. For Christians, everything has changed as well. And while the world around us looks about as bleak and barren as Israel and Hannah's time, life is springing up in our hearts. We know that the wages for our sin is death. We know that our hearts are as dead as doornails, but we know and have been convinced that God sent his son Jesus into this world of ours as a seed of life and a land of death. His life was perfect, a life giving substitute for my imperfect one. When Jesus died, he revoked the death sentence we were living under. He rose from the dead. He broke the power of death on our lives. And for those of you who are in Christ, God has brought the seed of the gospel to you in his own time, according to his own purpose. And for those in Christ, that seed of life has grown and blossomed into eternal life. Though your circumstances may not have changed much since coming to Christ, everything has changed because God's purposes towards you are good and gracious and kind. And that doesn't change even if you can't see it. What can Christians expect from God? We can always expect that he will do more for us than we could possibly know to ask. God will keep glorifying his name even when our circumstances seem bleak. We can expect God will work in a hundred ways that we cannot see. No one could see the shockwaves of salvation that would come from Hannah's prayer being answered until Hannah and most of her generation were long gone. Yet God is at work, and he is at work today in our midst. Don't you want to be part of that? Let's pray. Lord, we are people who are so often uh, short-sighted. We could not comprehend all that you are doing in your people, in the world at any given time. We confess, God, that you alone are holy, your character alone is good, and your purposes towards your people are good, are gracious, are kind. We thank you for the story of Hannah, this testimony of faith in your purposes, though she could not possibly have known and seen all that you were doing in her time. Lord, she had faith and believed and became an example to us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to have faith, to see in the eyes of our hearts, with the eyes of our hearts, that you are indeed working in our midst, great salvation in our day, and even in our own church. Lord, let us see you move. Let us see you do wondrous things for your name and help us trust you when we can see. In Jesus' name, amen.